0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Who has uh, spoken at our conference on several previous occasions. He's, um, are you chair of orthopedic surgery at Rady? I'm just a program director. Program director at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego and professor of clinical orthopedic surgery at UC San Diego and the David Sutherland director of the cerebral palsy program at Rady and program director of the education program there. You're one of the original Botox investigators and um, overseeing a movement disorder clinic as well as a lifespan disability clinic since 1992 and your son who has cerebral palsy is now 35 years old. I know. Wow. Welcome <laughs> Thank back. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me back. It's uh, always an honor to come to this great conference. Um, y- yesterday I flew in from uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery meeting in, in New Orleans, and we were learning how to put the screws in in the right place and all that stuff, and I walked into the transgender talk. I go, this is, I'm not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is a different, different group of people. Um, uh, when I was a uh, visiting professor in in Melbourne, Australia, um, I was challenged by my uh, host to give a to- more personal talk than rather a technical talk. And um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about our family and, and how it, um, uh, it affected me and how it affected um, the way I think about cerebral palsy. How many people in here have family members or, or themselves have some sort of developmental disability? And the rest of you went in it for the big money? Okay, all right, great. Um, is this the is this the advance? I'm sorry. Oh, here it is. All right, so I'm gonna um, talk about uh, cerebral palsy of you from both sides. And these are my disclosures. Um, I'm not gonna talk too much about it, but there are some off-label use. Um, botulinum toxin, um, at least some of the ones like Botox that you've heard of, has not been approved for use of spasticity by the FDA. Um, Disport, however, recently was approved for lower extremity um, spasticity. I had about intrathecal baclofen. It's not approved for the use in dystonia, and I, I, it's the best thing for, you can do for dystonia. However, um, when you think about it, 50% of all the drugs that we use as pediatric specialists are not approved for use in children. So um, we do these things off-label all the time. Every day you do that. What what is cerebral palsy? And there's a lot of different uh, definitions. When I was a resident, I was taught that it was all due to obstetrical trauma. And if you go look up, as as you all know, if you go Google um, cerebral palsy now, you'll find all the best lawyers. They're actually pretty good sites, but they're all lawyer sites, and they'll tell you have good pictures and tell you how to sue your sue your doctor, sue your obstetrician. Um, Was the baby too big or too small? And um, one of the things that, as we get together as a group and come up with consensus, we feel that it, has to, it occurs before the age of three. I can't believe I'm talking in front of Marshall, and she's going to tell me everything I'm doing is wrong, the world's best epidemiologist. Um, so I'll probably misquote her several times in this talk. Um, and then this is a thing that our Academy, American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine came up with a definition, and really... Um, you know you, you all know what cerebral palsy is, so i don't have to go into much uh, detail, but that it's a non progressive disturbance of the brain, and I may argue a little bit against that from some of the things that I've seen in my adult practice, um, but it affects everything, so you know, I'm not going to read that whole definition, but it affects everything in in the body. So epidemiology, and you notice I call this the cerebral palsies. It's not the cere- it's not, there's no such thing as cerebral palsy. There's no one disease um, or one entity. Um, and a lot of this, some of this work is from Eve Blair in um, Australia. And um, so the risk is much higher if you're born prematurely, if you're very small. And one in three children with a very low birth weight will have CP. However, uh, as you saw today from um, Yvonne's slide, most of the children with cerebral palsy are not premature. It's um, maybe a little bit more than half. And um, and there you can see that number there. The prevalence, and this is from Marshall and study, um, showed that um, in three states, three to four patients, the, the prevalence is a little bit higher than we have been talking about, one to three, and now it's, it's probably three to four patients. 3.8 was the number. And so there are about 10,000 new diagnoses each year. About a million people in the United States have cerebral palsy. Um, One of the things is we've been more successful in the the NICU and also taking care of children um, as pediatricians um, is that we have a longer survival rate. And there are now more adults than there are children with cerebral palsy. Um, There's also some uh, racial uh, differences, which we aren't really uh, quite sure why that is. It probably has to do with... um, uh, Availability of services in the uh, prenatal period, but fifty-four percent of Americans have a, some sort of disability. In fact, everyone in this room, at some point in your life, will either be disabled or dead. Think about that. <laughs> right? You're going to be in a walker or crutches or a walker or something or a uh, wheelchair, or you're going to be dead. Um, if you look at if you look at the entire um, cost of a child with cerebral palsy across all levels of um, severity, it's about a million dollars. So this is a huge impact on our uh, medical system. Um, the etiology of the, primi- of the cerebral palsies, I- I'm not going to go through all of these, um, mainly just shows you how complex cerebral palsy is and that there are so many different types. Um, the thing that I'm just going to, once again, because I'm bringing a little bit of, of my um, Family into it, um, and that is this hemostatic disorders. So um, we talked a little bit in that in the EPO talk about how it can cause increased clotting clotting problems. Um, we um, when I my wife was pregnant when I was an intern, and we found out we were going to have twins. About halfway through my internship, one of our twins died in utero. And when he was born, I mean, when my other son was born prematurely because my wife had an abruption, um, found out that uh, the other child's umbilical cord was completely clotted off. And that was the cause. We go, that's really terrible, bad luck. And my son has really bad, you know, uh, uh, GMFCS level four CP now. Um, And then um, 20 years later, my wife got Several blood clots on a coming back from a from a uh, trip over to Europe where we sat on the ground for a long time, and turns out that she has factor V Leiden, um, the heterozygous type, not the homozygous type. But if you if you think about it, about f- up to five percent of American women have this as maybe a cause of seizure disorders, um, or not seizure disorders, but um, um, stroke stroke problems. And so um, that's where we found out where my son ha- had this. Um, There are some other interesting things in here, Um, and Yvonne talked about these as far as uh, chromosomal and and brain abnormalities. Many of our GMFCS level 5 patients, um, the more severely involved patients, have some sort of chromosomal abnormality. And as we we just got a $120 million grant at Rady Children's in San Diego, and we're doing more uh, genetic testing on all these patients, and we're finding... Things that you've never even heard of, you know. It's just a series of numbers, and then I'm supposed to figure out what to do for the, with that child. And I think I'm glad I'm at the end of my career rather than the beginning of my career because I don't know how we're ever going to know how to to treat these because we won't know the natural history. Um, the, a big study here in Contra Costa County uh, several, several years ago demonstrated um, that there was an increased high incidence of vaginosis in the mothers whose, kid, whose children had cerebral palsy. You know, and once again, none of these things are, are, um, uh, this, these are correlations. They're not causations. And we really aren't sure what's going on. Um, we do know that some things like epigenetic factors, such as maternal depression, that's misspelled, and a couple of other things that are happening. So just think about the brain and um, remember the homunculus from from uh, medical school and from college, and um, think about you know why is why is why does this happen? This is why well, now you can hear the simple orthopedic surgeon. There's no neurology going on here. This is orthopedic surgeons with pictures. Okay, so it's the only way I can remember things. So. But here's the brain. <laughs> that kind of looks like a brain, um, and here's the homunculus. And remember that. Uh, so the the in, the in these this gyrus here is where the where the legs are, and your legs are pretty stupid. They do the same thing, right? You walk. You don't do anything fancy with that. But with your hands and your face, you have a lot of different things going on. So if this is the these are the ventricles, and then remember this watershed area, and that was the thing that Yvonne talked about. If there's a if there's a area of injury right there, the legs are more preferentially involved than the upper extremities. And that's what diplegia means. Lower extremities are involved more than the upper extremities. And it can be symmetric, but most of the time it's not. Um, And very rarely are two kids the same. And that's really hard for us to do research now because we don't know. Um, We can't get a control group because they're not the same. They have some other problem going on. And she talked about the strokes. Um, and this area of the basal ganglia is really changed. Our understanding of what happens at the basal ganglia has really changed our um, evaluation of children with cerebral palsy, our treatment of children with cerebral palsy. And um, and I'll explain that as, uh, later as we get to that. This new functional MRI information is just beautiful, looks great. Um, we don't know what to do with it yet. There's so many, there, you know, there's all these. All these, all it does is show how interconnected the brain is. I mean, that's that's the most important thing. You know, if there's, um, if you look at some of these tractography things, there's a there's a something from the cerebellum happens, goes to almost every every tract that comes out of your body. So if you have a problem in your cerebellum. And it affects your balance. It affects everything. It affects your speech. It affects the way you walk. It affects the way you talk, the way you use your upper extremities. And so we're learning this, but this is, becomes very complex three dimensional things. So Yvonne talked a little bit about some of these preventive strategies, and obviously that's going to be our hope is to not have a child with cerebral palsy. And she talked, you know, as you can, you can see, we could talk an hour about every single one of these things. And she she talked about some of those. And, you know, I th- I think most of us believe that this is an, an an inflammatory problem in the particularly in the premature children, and, and maybe in the HIE pa- um, patients. And so, what can we do? What kind of anti-inflammatories are we going to be able to to give? Whether that's cooling or EPO, all kinds of things. Um, there are some children that are born with hypothyroidism. Um, it has to be tested, or you won't be able to treat it. Um, and that's a, that's an effect on the brain. Um, we talked about um, the EPO and other things that are erythropoiesis-stimulating agents. Um, avoidance, having, having our, our, our mothers avoid um, toxic substances, of course, is important. Um, there's a an assistive uh, reproductive technology has changed. So probably 10 or 15 years ago, um, we would have runs of quadruplets and quintuplets from this reproductive technology. And I think the... Um, obstetricians are much better at it now so they might be able to implant at least the most twins and so our instance went down at one point we had six quintuplet sets in our uh, NICUs and uh, two each two of them each had all of all those two of them had cerebral palsy so i'm still taking care of those those families and of course remember i told this this the um cerebral palsy goes up to the age of 3 so anything you can do um, like non to avoid to prevent non accidental trauma, um, near drowning, and those kind of those things that cause uh, brain injuries It's very similar to cerebral palsy. So how did I get into into this field? I um, when I was when I was in medical school, I was very interested in pediatrics. I thought that was what I was going to do. And then I got very interested in orthopedics, and then I found out there's a thing called pediatric orthopedics. So that's what I was going to do when I started medical school. So before, I mean, when I started my residency. So this was before my son was born. But we were going by with my wife who was pregnant, and we saw a United Cerebral Palsy telethon. And she goes, what's cerebral palsy? And I go, oh, let's see. I learned that in that same class where I learned about muscular dystrophy and um, myasthenia gravis, and so I made up something. Um, and, uh, and I did in my pediatric rotation, I only had one, one patient with cerebral palsy the whole, the whole uh, two months I was on that as an intern. And then when my son was born, when I was an intern, and this is him, and uh, he weighed uh, two pounds and nine ounces. My residency taught me everything that is was wrong. And unfortunately, I still see this going on across the world and across the United States. One of the, we just lengthen tendons. Orthopedic surgeons just lengthen tendons and, and see how they do. Put them in casts for a long time. And um, that's what I learned, and that's what my son had. He had all these surgeries. My son's had 29 operations now. And um, I would say 20 of them were bad. Um, and I pushed them. So that's, that makes me feel even worse. Um, I was very fortunate to do a fellowship in San Diego with um, Dr. David Sutherland who um, became famous here at UCSF and at the Shriners Hospital. He, invent, he was one of the inventors of the field of gait analysis. Um, and I was a very forward thinker in, in the way that we do surgery, and so we've been, uh, it was very lucky and The other thing is for those of you who are younger and are um, getting into this field, I think it 's very important to get into some sort of organi- one of the organized um, organ- one of the organizations and so I started off in the American Academy of cerebral palsy, went to meetings, got to meet everybody. Got on committees. Eventually, was the president of the organization. Is you know, and it, right now I can call anybody in the world if I have a question. And those things are those are really important. Um, and you know, and unfortunately, I, my inbox is filled with people asking me questions right now. But um, it also is great. It's it's a good thing. So, what is gate analysis? I mentioned that because of Dr. Sutherland and. You know this is really an important uh, field. So it's, as I told you, every child is different, and so there's different ways to do gait analysis. You can do, I, you can just, I can just walk, watch a child walk back and forth, write down my observations. I can take a video on my on my iPhone and and save that. My hospital won't let me do that, but I, my my iPhone's filled filled with them. And um, the other thing is to do what's called three dimensional gait analysis, where you where you do. Um, you can You can measure what 's going on in, in in three dimensions and um, and then make your decisions based on that. Um, if Those of you who 've never seen gate analysis um, might have seen some movies where gate analysis was used, like every Pixar movie every every Disney movie was made with gate analysis um, Steven, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg sent his team down to our lab for three weeks and we showed them motion capture and how that works and we go oh man we're going to get research money this is going to be great (laughs) and we took them out to dinner we did all kinds of stuff and then they ended up saying thank you and then they went and bought 20 motion capture systems and that's when they started making the pixar movies so we got nothing out of it but (laughs) but i do enjoy those movies so i guess that's good um Classification systems, uh, the diplegia, quadriplegia, hemiplegia system is very poor intra and inter-observer reliability. If you look at my own chart, someday I'll say the kid has severe diplegia and the next day he has mild quadriplegia. And so it's really hard to, um, these don't work. Um, you know, one of the people that, that uh, a famous neurologist who popularized this, he didn't come up with it, but he popularized this. Anybody know? Sigmund Freud. So, Sigmund Freud's one of his big interests in research was cerebral palsy. He wasn't a psychiatrist, he was a neurologist. Um, um, there's a thing in Europe where they talk about unilateral versus bilateral. Talk about simplistic. I really don't like this system at all. It, it doesn't make any sense. Anybody who's taken care of a kid with hemiplegia knows that they're not unilateral. And so, and, and now they've, there's been many studies that show that that's wrong 25% of the time. So, that's not a very good system, I don't think. Um, using this, this household ambulator, therapy ambulator, community ambulator, those are, those are good things. Kind of gives you a picture of the patient, but it doesn't tell you much about it. And what's revolutionized the field of cerebral palsy is the gross motor functional classification system. And this is derived from a, a test called the GMFM. Um, and this is what, seri- many of you are therapists and know how to do this. It takes a while. You have to ask a lot of questions. You do tests. You come up with a score, um, a number. And you take that number and um, um, the group in, a group in Canada um, came, got, just started putting these out and, and plotting these you know, hundreds of patients and realized that they came out in five pretty close groups um, and came up with something really complicated of how to figure out what they are. And, of course, orthopedic surgeons get a hold of it and make pictures and make cartoons. And so this car- these cartoons are great because that's how I remember it, and, and hopefully the way you'll remember it, too. So a level one patient is someone who hardly has, has anything wrong with them. They're, you know, they may be a little bit uncoordinated, un- might be the last kid picked on the baseball team. There's, something, you know, there's just something different. A level two is someone who has problems on uneven ground. And in a first-world country, the way you can tell is they're wearing an AFO. Okay, that doesn't work so much in Haiti where I go, or or Jamaica. But if they have an AFO, that tells you they have GMFCS two. Level three is someone who uses crutches or a walker can use a wheel can use a push themselves in a in a regular wheelchair, but usually a walker. Um, Level four is someone who is in a um, uh, powered uh, chair or someone who has um, can walk in therapy. And then a level five is someone who needs complete um, care and is in, a, is in a wheelchair most of the time. Um, and so this is really an interesting thing because if you just use the word spastic diplegia, that could be almost this entire group. It could be anywhere on there. And I'm totally, I have about 20 papers that I just need to throw away that I wrote um, because they, I, I used, well, in fact, first, our, our Botox patients were. Um, All GMFCS-1s. So um, here's the interesting thing about about this, is if you do anything to a child before the age of 6 or 7, anything, physical therapy, early intervention, Botox, any surgery, they're getting better. That's the natural history. They're going to improve no matter what you do. So all the kids in the first Botox studies were under the age of 6 and GMFCS-1. And surprisingly, they all got better. What an, a miracle, a miracle <laughs> drug that I'm such a great doctor. <laughs> and um, but anyways, so when we look at, when we look at um, uh, the GMFCS and how it revolutionized things, it, everything that we do is almost directly correlated. It's not even logarithmically. It's directly correlated to their GMFCS. And these are the things that we do in orthopedics, including things like morbidity, morbidity and mortality. The, the GMFCS is not an outcome measure. It's a, it's just a classification system. But if you want to, if you want to do something to see if you can improve how child, what they're doing within in the gross motor functional area, is to do this thing called the functional mobility scale, and that's what happens. That's what the child can do at 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 fifty met, at five meters, fifty meters, and five hundred meters, and you figure that out, and then that's what the um, you can say that by doing this intervention, they improved from using a walker, or from say using a wheelchair at, at, at 50 meters, and they're now using a walker. So those are that that's a helpful, uh, that's something that you've done to improve their outcomes. Now there are other, that's just the gross motor functional classification. We also have other, I am nothing to do with it, but people have developed scales um, for the upper extremity called the manual ability classification system, very similar. Um, There's now a communication system. Um, So this is really a great way to communicate and also for us to do research. So if you tell me this person is a GMFCS level three and then you tell me what they do at each, at five meters, 50 meters, 500 meters. You tell me how they use their upper extremities based on this, and you tell me how they communicate. I have a great picture of that person in my mind. And I can also, and also if I'm doing research, I go, I want all those patients to be in that, that group. And so it really has changed our field. Very simple thing. Now we talk about the dimensions of disability, and um, you, know, you saw some of this yesterday. And... and um, uh, and I, I, all of you are familiar with these, but the, the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health, or the ICF, looks at body functions and structures, activities and participation, and environmental factors. And so um, this, this is the, the model that we, we, we base all of our research on and also what, um, what our goals are as taking care of children and adults with disabilities. Um, so I, I can work a little bit on body and function and structures I can, um, my goal is to get them to participate more. Um, and then I have almost nothing to do with environmental factors. That's, something, that's usually something that the government does with curb cuts and, and uh, accommodations at work. Um, and so this is, I started the, um, this is when I was in San Antonio as a junior faculty member. And I started the Challenger Baseball League there. And I also started the Challenger League in, in San Diego. And so this is a baseball thing where the kids come out. And this is my. My son Sean and uh, his little brother, and this is him just last week. Um, he's in a drumming a drumming circle. You can just see the joy that he has. Um, and so that's our goal: is to get them, get your your patients and your 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 son and everybody out doing stuff. Um, I wish he was that happy all the time. That's a different story. We'll talk about that later. Um, the other one is the uh, this is this is actually my favorite. Um, we kinda, it was made by the NIH, and it, it's uh, it, um, NCMRR. And it um, puts a person at the center of this. Of this, It could be anybody. It doesn't have to be. Um, when I give this talk to orthopedic residents, I say, this could be someone with a hip problem that you're going to do a total hip on. And it looks at the different dimensions of that, that problem. Um, and it looks at the pathophysiology, what caused it. We talked a little bit about it. What's the impairment, what, which means what's happening at the cell level, for example, spasticity. Um, How do we treat that? We look at the functional limitation. Those are the, what does spasticity do for you? If you're walking, you 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 have a hard time walking, you have a hard time speaking, you have a hard time using your upper extremities. Um, Your disability, or what are your roles in society? We all have different roles. We're students, teachers, husbands, wives. Think of every role that you have. Um, How does that disability impact those? And then the societal limitations are what does our society put in as, as far as way of curb cuts and um, a- a- attitudinal uh, approach, you know, problems of way we treat people with disabilities, as we learned yesterday in the ACLU talk. Um, the, um, this was kind of thrown out mainly because almost all the words are negative, you know, disability, functional limitation, impairment. Um, and and that's where the WHO kind of came out of that with positive language. I mean, just because it's negative doesn't mean it's not good. So I, I like it, and it it makes it helps me think about different things. So we come up with different paradigms, and we all have to set goals. Um, and it's really important that these goals are collective and realistic. So when you sit down with a family to decide whether it's therapy or Drug therapy, some drug, Botox, orthopedic surgery. I'm not going to cure your child's cerebral palsy. And if that's what you think your goal is, then you're. It's not. No one's going to be happy. And so we have to set the goals. We have a, a team. Um, you all are are this team. You know, I, I have a thing. When I my first thing I did in the CP Academy, um, so this is like 1991 or something. They asked me to put on a uh, the family forum, which is the first one that we had. And so I, was, I brought all the people who were specialists to come and speak to the, the um, uh, audience in San Diego, and I stupidly put 32 people on the stage because that's how many people impact. You know, if you think about speech therapists, you know, physical therapists, gastroenterologists, um, it was a great, it was a great one. We never replicated that because it was just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> And then um, the management of movement disorders. We'll talk about that and the different therapies. Um, what's the role of technology? Um, most important thing, of course, orthopedic surgery. Not really; it's the least important thing. And then we'll talk about that. So we have to set goals. And this is a study that was done about twenty years ago. They asked uh, the question: Was this? These are asked young adults. What's the most important thing in your life? And the first one was independence. And I think that's true of all of us. Who wants to be living with their parents? Who wants to you know, be independent? Um, the next one was to have a job. In um, one of my earlier slides, I showed you that 75% of people with cerebral palsy are unemployed, even if they have skills. Um, communication, just what we're doing now, just talking, having, exchanging ideas. Um, Activities of daily living, brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, um, just taking care of yourself. Um, mobility, getting from point A to point B, very important. And the least important of all, drum roll, was walking, which is what I do all day trying to get people to walk. Um, And so that's, um, we're actually doing a study right now where we're asking the parents the similar thing. I haven't looked at the data yet, but my guess is it's going to be completely opposite of this, right? The first one, all they care about is walking. I went through that when my son couldn't walk. That's one of the things you give up. I mean, it's really a horrible thing when you realize your child can't walk. And um, so you go, you know, you go backwards, and the last thing you, and anybody cares about is independence, as we learned yesterday and conservatorship, that that's or guardianship, if you're not from this state. So we have an integrated approach for children with cerebral palsy. I'm obviously not going to go through all of these, but it's important. It's just a big team that we, we work together and, um, and come up with the answers. So... Um, a lot of you here I know are, are therapists, so um, occupational therapists, in, um, at least in the field of cerebral palsy, are the ones that take care of upper extremity and oral motor, motor um, problems. Uh, talking to you is a joke, but I know but I do give this talk to orthopedic surgeons. Um, um, speech and language is very important. The management of drooling. So this is a kind of an interesting... You know, the kids who are GMFCS three, fours, and 5s often have drooling. Does anybody know which federal agency has spent the most money on drooling research? Oh, see, you're not supposed to answer it. <laughs> it's actually... It's, it's NASA. And, uh, gosh, you usually get Department of Defense or now the White House. Um, but... <laughs> actually, that's, that's us watching TV at night going, seriously? <laughs> um, but, um, so, but when you go into space, you drool. It just goes all over the place. I've actually been to two NASA drooling uh, uh, se- seminars. And the story they, the, the story they told me, because my son had a real bad drooling problem, um, when I was... Um, uh, when Gemini you know, we had Mercury they went up and they came down Gemini for the, for the young people who never, don't know anything about this that's when they sent two people up and they stayed up for a long time like several weeks and um, not knowing that when they took their helmets off this drool just came out all over the place it's, they didn't know it was just they couldn't, didn't see it except for as soon as they came back in the atmosphere it came all over their masks and just two weeks of drool all over everything and so now they have ways to stop that, and um, anyways, in fact, the first thing they have to do on, on the space shuttle is wake up in the morning with a little vacuum cleaner and find the little, their little drool things and, and pick them up because it can get in the instruments and, and short it out. The other thing that we the other thing we don 't think about is um, you know this is a brain injury, so there 's visual, there's visual problems and if you think about, you know, we have a child with hemiplegia. Just close one eye and see when you bring your other hand over. When do you actually see it? It's pretty far, you know. It's almost midline before you see it. And so if you have a set, if this kid that you're working on, you go, "Why aren't you using your hand?" He you "He doesn't even know he has a hand." And so those are that, that's a real that's a real problem. Besides the fact that there's a motor disorder there, they don't know that, they forget that they have the hand. So think. And the other one is you can have a, a field cut inferior field cut so if you're walking you can't see the floor it's gonna be hard you have a really hard time walking Um, so physical therapy there's a lot of different physical therapies we can talk an hour on each of the different things Um, everyone in this room of course knows what hippotherapy is none of the none of the orthopedic surgeons do um, even though the pictures right there and um, and those glasses now are back in style although women wear them. I saw them on the plane yesterday. They, all, they were all just <laughs> girls wearing them. So just know that they're back. And, um, and the other thing that physical therapists, I think, are really great at um, is managing equipment. I mean, you all, those of you who are therapists know that. Um, you, know the, you know the equipment much better than we do and what, what will be helpful for them. So that brings up the field of technology, and what are the? It's a, there's a promise and challenges. A lot of people say if we just gave a lot of money to technology and threw everything to it, then things would be great. However, there's a lot of challenges with with technology. It's very expensive. These these can these things can't be mass produced. So you know there's not that many people that need them. So it, be, it becomes very expensive. Training is really hard. So my son had the the Dynavox. Do y'all use the Dynavox? Remember using the Dynavox? I could never figure that thing out. That is just like You have to have like a PhD in communication. It's, uh, anyways, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but there's training, and then there's upkeep. You have to upgrade it. Things break. And of course, the insurance company might pay for the first one, but they won't pay to fix it, as you all know. Um, and many th- times, we have to do speci- specificity for each child. And then you as therapists know that, that that's your job to keep that going. Um, Someone said, What if we have robotics? Wouldn't that be cool? We could do really cool things with robotics. And and maybe that will be, there may be something in the future. And this is the Locomat. Many of you have seen these before. They cost a million dollars each, at least. And so we're using them for kids who are GMFCS4, right? So the kids who are really non-ambulators and maybe the GMFCS-3 kids, I'm not putting it down because I, I think it's good to get exercise and, and things, but is, is, it, is it really going to change that person's life? Are they really going to become, go from a GMFCS-4 to a GMFCS-3? That's very rare for that to happen. Our goal, our goal as clinicians is to keep someone in their GMFCS level. So if you see, you see someone dropping from a three to a four, your goal is to get them back to the three. And that could be from surgery or physical therapy or something. Your goal is not to that, your goal is not to make them go go from a, a, a three to a two. That just doesn't happen. Uh, maybe occasionally, but it's it doesn't it doesn't happen. However, this one right here, using um, using a child that has athetosis and using a computer to modulate those extra movements so they can use a computer. Those are those are going to be very helpful. So I think there's a lot of things that are that are coming along. Um, speech therapy and communication devices. Um, you all know how important this is. We, I told you where it was in, the, in people's hierarchy of needs. And this is, um, so we went from this Dynavox, which costs like $8,000. I had one, which we never used. Um, and then in all these very simple ones, um, one of my friends, well, our friend Richard Elson um, in, um, in New York sold his, he had the leap frog or the leap for the frog, something or other. He sold that to Dynavox, but he was smart enough to know that the market was about to crash because no one at Dynavox had heard of an iPad apparently, and uh, so he made millions of dollars, and then they went bankrupt like a couple months later. So it's uh, he's very smart, Um, but this is where we are now. An iPad's you know $500, and you can get the uh, it's usually about a $400. application to put on it and so we've had really good luck with that and and the speech is is, is very good our mobility is getting from point A to point B and this is usually just means different types of assistive devices Um, and it also shows how bad public transportation is for people with disabilities I mean at least in at least in San Diego I can't speak for everywhere but um, almost everywhere I give this talk they all agree it's really hard to get on public transportation this is a controversial area Um, Especially, I'm talking to a room with therapists in it, so I have to be I have to remember what I'm talking about. Um, so, I, a lot of people they want to get everybody wants to get people standing, and their goal is to uh, Im- improve a lot of things: the bone density, GI function, uro- urologic function. There's all there's all kinds of good reasons to stand, I, and I think and I and I agree with that. However, when um, the studies were actually done with with DEXA scans and and things at uh, Boston Children's. Um, you have to stand for at least an hour a half a day to get any improvement in your bones. That's a lot. An hour and a half a day is a lot. Um, and and no one knows if it affects, they don't have a long-term to know if it affects fracture or fragility. Um, and if you look at how some of these kids, particularly the GMFs, four and five kids are standing, they're standing on their groin. There's no weight going through those legs. So the area in your pelvis is probably pretty good, and that area never breaks. But, that's, um, but you just wonder about what. And so my, when I tell someone that when they want to go into a standing program, I ask them, do they like it? And if the kid likes it and they like to do things upright, I think that's really good. Because I, I, go I take care of adults, and I still had some people that were taking four other adults to lift this person into a standing frame every day, and the person hated it. And so, because they said, well, it's going to affect his bones. He's going to break his bones if we don't. And I don't think there's any evidence that shows that that's true. Um, wheelchairs, we go from the simple sling chairs to the, you know, the, the custom power chairs. Don't ever use those for anything but transportation, any of the sling chairs. I mean, you all sat in one of those chairs, you know, the ones they take you out of the hospital with. I mean, if you sit on those for more than, like, an hour, your your leg's numb and it's really, they're not very comfortable. Um, but it becomes very expensive and we go all the way up to these very expensive things. I know you all know this because you work in the field. How much do these cost? Yeah, my son's cost 35,000, the last one. So, but his goes, he has to tilt in space because he has GI problems. And so um, everything, it just becomes very, very expensive and if you think about that. Um, um, transportation, you have, you know, there's, very, there's not very many of these. This is from Columbus, Ohio. Um, these, these are very expensive. I'm on our I'm on our fourth one of those. How much do those cost? Uh 20 to 5000 yeah, the van. Yeah, after the van after it's converted it's about 50, it's about 50. Yeah, 45 to 50. If you get an FM radio in it it's like 50000 50. No. <laughs> yeah, so it's they're they're very expensive and that's the problem. Most of our families can't afford this. And I, you know, I'm a orthopedic surgeon. I can afford it, but it's not it's not uh, readily available to everyone and their and heart if, if you get them when you can get them used they're, that means they're almost worn out and the, 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 the shocks are bad everything's bad because you add all that extra weight so we talk about the medical management of cerebral palsy and it's not just the, the motor problems all those things we talked about before and I just list all of these things here because my son's had all of those um, and unfortunately I di- had to diagnose most of them myself um, because no one, no one picked them up particularly the the gallstones and the, the kidney stones were, were missed. So we we'll talk about movement disorders and, um, and, and the importance of, of, of how we treat these. Um, what, what is spasticity? You know the definition of spasticity? Y'all treat it every day. What is it? Do you guys know what you're treating? <laughs> What is the definition of spasticity? Yeah, that's not it, actually. Yes, sir? Intermittent rigidity of muscles and tendons as they move joints. Yeah, that's not it either. Yes? Yes, it's the reaction of a muscle to a rapid stretch, to a rapid, to a rapid movement. What you're talking about is dystonia, and I'll talk about that in just a second. So this is, you know, and what's the best way to test it? Big hints on the board. That's how you rapidly stretch a muscle. You hit the tendon and you stretch it, and that's how, that's how it works. Choreoathetosis, what is that? Oh, come on, this group. I can, there you go. I like, there you got it. You got it back there. It's the, the, the marionette movement. And that's great, so that, that's very good, I appreciate that. Um, how about ataxia, how do you know if someone has ataxic? So every time you either walk with a really broad base or every time you walk, the next step is different from the one before it. Um, I know none of you have ever seen anybody drink alcohol, but <laughs> if you have, that's what, ataxia, that's what ataxia looks like afterwards. So it's every step, maybe you might have had alcohol before. I just came from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in in uh, New Orleans. I saw a lot of ataxia coming. <laughs> in fact, my son, who is now a chief resident in orthopedics at the Cleveland Clinic, um, came in at two in the morning yesterday with a, quite ataxic. Um, and then dystonia is what you were talking. Dystonia is the posturing. Um, you get your muscle in a different position and you posture and turn the heads and you see this and you'll see this in the kids. And this is a really critical thing and it changes how we do, um, how we take care of kids. Um, if you, and when I give this talk to orthopedic surgeons, I go, why do we care about any of this stuff? This is what neurologists do. But if you have a child that has dystonia, the worst thing you could possibly do for that kid is to do an orthopedic surgery on them, to lengthen their tendons. You'll make them much worse. My son has cerebral, has dystonia. And the other thing about dystonia is it doesn't show up until they're about six or seven years old. You, they're not born with dystonia. And then it gets worse during puberty. And so you might, you might miss it. And so we do sometimes do surgery in little kids, and, that's, and then you screw them up. So I would say ten of my son's surgeries were wrong because he has dystonia including the selective dorsal rhizotomy. So this is just a bigger picture. And this is, for, this is really for the stupid orthopedic surgery, but hopefully you guys will pick something out. of it. So if you, I if you were to cut your head off, you would just be a reflex, okay? Every, you're, you would, as you walk, you would rapidly stretch your gastroc. It would go back. I mean, that's your stretch receptors in your muscle. It would go back through your spinal cord, and right away you'd pop back up on your toes. And that's what equinus is. So a kid with equinus is doing that. What comes from the brain are inhibitors or modulators of that reflex. And that, that drug or that neurotransmitter is GABA, gamma immunobutyric acid. So what do we do? What are things that we give that are GABA agonists? Valium, baclofen, those are, those are GABA agonists. What can we do in this, in this to stop this reflex arc? We could botulinum toxin into the muscle. That stops this this thing. We can do selective dorsal rhizotomies and that's all to break up this reflex arc. So this really simple idea explains how all of our treatments of of spasticity works just based on this. If you remember the spasticity is the rapid stretch. And so here's a a child with ataxia, just to show the, the movements. You can see it's wide base. sometimes they're different. Here's a child with choreoathetosis. I think you can see how she has a hard time walking. Here's a child that has both dystonia and choreoathetosis. So there's the movement and you'll see his arm just kind of go into full extension there and just, um, you know, keep, keep his arm stiff. And that's the, that's the dystonia part. So this is re- this really changed our field of, of understanding spasticity versus dystonia. And um, so when you tell say when you tell me someone ch- child has spastic quadriplegia, that's probably not true. There's spasticity there, but most of them have dystonic. They're usually dystonic cerebral palsy, and that makes and that's a huge difference. And this is a picture of my son when he was this is this is in his baseball league. And actually, that person is his roommate today. They're now thirty five and thirty seven years old, and then. Um, this is him. He was so rotated from his dystonia. Um, he, he couldn't use his computer anymore. He couldn't drive his wheelchair. And he asked me at this age to take him to the operating room and kill him. And um, his life was so miserable. And so this comes down to this area. It's called the basal ganglia. And, of course, as an orthopedic surgeon, I will spend an hour explaining these to you. Now, I, have, I have no idea what they are, but they're somewhere down in the brain. <laughs> um, but there are other problems that happen with... Um, with uh, cerebral palsy that we forget about is the loss of selective motor control. So two children have the, look exactly the same, they have the same amount of spasticity, but if you ask them to reach for something and grab it, they can't. And the one that's the most common is someone that has hemiplegia that has a drop foot afterwards. They can't fire their tib ant, even though they have a tib the ant, tibialis anterior muscle. We forget the sensory deficits that happen with strokes for kids with hemiplegia. They have, you know, they may not feel their upper extremity. They may not feel their legs. And then last is weakness. And we really didn't appreciate how weak children, um, with several with children with cerebral palsy were weak until we were able to manage their spasticity. You know, you used to, you can stand up a kid with spasticity and dystonia and they just stand there and you go, look how strong that kid is. And then you manage that and they're just as weak as you possibly can be. Um, and so what do we do for, with physical therapy um, and, and managing spasticity? Um, we can do physical therapy. And those of you who've had a massage know exactly how you feel for about 15 minutes afterwards. And you go, why did I spend that much money? It was great, but now it's, I feel tight again. Um, and then these are the drugs that we use. So we use um, diazepam. We use Baclofen. And for kids who have dystonia, we can use this drug called Artane. Um, I haven't had good success with it, but uh, there are some people that use it for all their children with dystonia. Um, the big problem that I've seen with this is really severe um, uh, nightmares. So the kids just want to quit taking it because their nightmares are so bad. Um, we can do we can put phenol or alcohol into the right on the nerve, and that dissolves the myelin sheath, and that gets rid that breaks up once again that reflex arc, and then we can use um, the botulinum toxins. Once again, are off label, but I've given over twenty thousand injections now. Um, and now I have six physiatrists that work for me, or with me, and, they, and, and that's much of what they do. And this new thing, this cannabis CBD oil, I think is, is, there's really some hope for that. And I have some families who are, are using that, and the problem is, is we can't study it. Um, Jeff Sessions said he would inv- uh, put me in jail. And... Um, and really, my hospital won't let me do it because we're worried we're going to lose our federal funding if we study it. So I can't, I can't even study it. So it's really really kind of sad. I can prescribe it, but I can't use it. So in orthopedic surgery, we can lengthen tendons. That lengthens the, that reflex arc. It changes that reflex arc, but it only lasts for about six months. We can actually cut the bones to rotate them. That lengthens some muscles and shortens some muscles can cut nerves, which we never like to do because they often come back and it's, it doesn't work very well. And surprisingly, if you fuse the spine in some of these kids who have really bad dystonia and athetosis, it, it improves them. We don't know why. There's some central control of that, and I think that's why. The big thing that's changed our care, particularly of dystonia, is the intrathecal baclofen pump. And that's where we place the pump in the, um, in the muscles underneath the, in, the, in the abdomen Run a, run a tube around the back and into the spine, and you can run it all the way up. As, if you want to get the upper extremities, you put it up there. If you want to get both, I mean, if you want to get upper and lower, if you just need lower, you do there. Um, my son had the highest one put in at the time. It's at C2, um, and really changed his life in several ways. It made his, it got rid of his dystonia completely. He, he, has, he has none. Um, he's re- just floppy now, which is great to help take care of him. Um, but he still has muscle; con- he has motor control. The bad thing is it affected his swallowing, and he got pneumonia, which put him in the ICU for six months. And he had to have a he had to have a feeding tube placed, um, and, a, and a, so those things are all things you don't think about. But um, in retrospect, if we ever lost this, his his quality of life would be so bad. You can do a selective dorsal rhizotomy, and so these are these are kids where you cut some of the some of the afferent. Um, Uh, neurons that go back to the to the spine that breaks up the reflex arc Um, you cut about 30 to 40 percent at from L1 to S1 and you improve or from L2 to S1 and it decreases their spasticity however these are for only for kids who are pure spasticity um, premature have good trunk control and are probably level ones or two okay they don't work for everything else so of course my son's a four he had a rhizotomy and because of that he had Horrible lordosis of his spine. I'll show you his picture of what happened and actually had spine fractures from being in this lordosis. So another unintended consequence made by your father. Um, so this is him before the surgery and then after the surgery. And you can tell um, how, that, uh, dis- how this, that baclofen pump helped. Um, deep brain stimulation seems like it'd be a really positive thing. Um, the center of research in this area is here at UCSF. And my patients that get this come up here for that. Um, and uh, it, it hasn't worked so well in cerebral palsy because there's such a diffuse injury. Um, it has worked well in uh, kids who have uh, what's called DYT1 um, dystonia, which looks like cerebral palsy, but it's an inherited um, problem. So in orthopedic surgery, we we want to do things called single event multi-level surgery where we operate on the whole the, every do as many operations as we can on one day so I'll sometimes do 20 operations on one day on one kid and then they go through, the, they go through all the rehab and all the pains out of the way we use, we use epidural catheters and then they start their rehab period and um, that, that's a new change and there are still places in the world that don't do that um, you want to delay the surgery as long as possible, so greater than six years. And we want to manage their spasticity as well as um, doing, their, doing their surgery. And so this is a, a paper that we wrote, and um, uh, Roz Boyd is, is the lead author. And I can guarantee it's true because we made it up in a bar one night. And it's published. It's published, so it's got to be true. Um, but it really is just a philosophy. So when they're really young, when they're really young you use Botox botulinum toxin and uh, physical therapy and braces as they get older you add casting to that Um, there's more casting and the only time we do something different is if their hips are coming out at any age we put their hips back in and that's our philosophy a lot of people don't do that and and the people who don't do that don't see adults and i have i've had an adult clinic for you know. Long time now, almost 30 years. And and I see what happens when your hips are dislocated. And there's no good way to fix them once they're out. So we put them in at any age. And I know there'll be people in here. I saw some people shaking their heads already. But we, we do that um, all the time. Um, and then we do this casting. And then we do this single-event multi-level surgery, 8 to 10 years old. And the other thing that you notice is when you get older, it's really hard. The surgery doesn't work as well as you get older. So there's this sweet spot. Right here, where we can we can intervene and change their life. After that, it's really salvage type things. So we'll go through level one. Is these are the high level kids. Um, many of them have seizures. They may be on the as they may be ASD on the spectrum um, as well as having this. This is from my friend Kirk Graham in, in Melbourne. Um, very little things. These kids may need botulinum toxin. Don't need any don't need anything else like intrathecal baclofen, and it's you know pretty mostly a therapy um, kind of thing to take care of. And level two, this is spastic diplegia of prematurity. These kids have a lot of gait problems um, and can get significant deformities, but they don't get scoliosis and they rarely get hip problems. Um, so these are the kids. If um, very few of them will get will benefit from um, SDR, but botulinum toxin is important. Um, and this is where we do a lot of our orthopedic surgery, and this is a single-event multi-level surgery. Um, these, are the, this is where, these are the kids that are using braces, and like I said, we can have an, I can have an hour-long talk on almost every one of these slides. Um, level three are the kids that are starting to get dystonia. So dystonia is coming in the picture. It affects how we do the surgery. It affects on what we use. These are the kids we might use in intrathecal baclofen pump, but usually it's um, orthopedic surgery. We look for their hips coming out of joint, which is when, the, this is when this really starts happening. And we start looking at their spine at this point as well. And so this is where we do the operations, where we cut the bones, rotate them, put these plates, and, and do these uh, pins here. And then level four, the patients are not, we're starting to see the non-ambulatory patients. And once again, much more dystonia. This is the time we start using intrathecal baclofen. Um, scoliosis and hip problems are much more uh, uh, prevalent during this, this group. And, we do, and, our, and our surgery changes. Before, we were doing surgery to improve their ambulation. And now we're doing surgery to improve their comfort and sitting. So these are different, and we do different operations. Before the GMFCS, I guarantee you, I, I've got papers you can look them up where I did operations to get kids walking who were GMFCS fours at age 10. I mean, it's just stupid. I mean, you just shouldn't even do that. So, um, but I've got papers on it. Um, it but it, and, and some of them got better, but most of them, almost all of them, are are still are just sitting now. And so once again, this direct relationship between hip displacement and their GMFCS level. 90% of people, GMFCS 5, will have hip problems and and need to be addressed. And that tells you about how you should screen them and when you should take x-rays. And so here's the sockets not forming right, the hips coming out of the joint. And then we've done CT scan showing that if you're a sitter, your hip comes out the back. So that makes sense. If you're sitting, your muscles are pulling your hip uh, posteriorly. And so we do surgery to fix the valgus of the hip, which is meaning the hip's going upward, or, and also for rotation, which is femoral antiversion. And so these are the operations that we do. Here's a kid with hips both out. Here they are with the hips back in. Another kid, same thing. Hips, here, here they are with their hips in. Long-term follow-up on, the, on that one. So GMFCS-5s, this, these kids have multiple uh, medical comorbidities, they have um, more, almost all these kids have dystonia. So we treat, these, we treat these, 90% of them will get hip problems and scoliosis, and our goal is comfortable sitting. Also managing these comorbidities, so we have these, a lot of these kids get all kinds, they're seeing all the other doctors, the gastroenterologist, the neurologist, um, pulmonologist, and our goal is to do preventive surgery so we don't have to do salvage procedures. We also start thinking a lot more of the caregiver quality of life. We think about it all the time. But this, this is really a tough time for families um, with child with GMFCS-5. And so we had to do these things to address the hip. And these are all salvage procedures that we don't want to do. These are kids whose hips are dislocated and no one picked them up. And these are the things that we can do. They're, none of these are good. Here's, this is a 13-year-old kid whose hip was coming out. There's no cartilage on this hip left. Okay, Can you imagine how painful that would be? And so this is, isn't this a very cool operation where we just cut the hips out? It's terrible. It's a terrible operation. Um, total hips, you go, oh, just put a total hip in. Very high complication rate and very difficult to do. There's a lot of complexity in, in, in doing that. Um, one of my friends in uh, DuPont in, in Wilmington is putting shoulder arthroplasties in because the, 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 these kids are so small that a shoulder will, um, you could put a shoulder in there and that would work. I've been, I'm getting ready to publish this study. This is where we inject botulinum toxin in the muscles around the hip. Um, and have had great results, um, with pain relief for up to, up to six months. So it's an, it's an expensive way to treat it. Not, I mean, but not, not more expensive than going in the operating room. Just walking in an operating room costs $15,000. And so, um, if I use 400 units of botulinum toxin, that's, what's that? $2,000 or something like that. $3,000. So it's much cheaper than doing surgery. Um, this is my son's foot after my partners did all these terrible operations on him, um, and he had this ulcer, and so I came in the operating room, and told him how to do the right operation, and that's his foot now. Um, so we fused the MTP joint and we lengthened it. I'm joking about that, but no, that, but but it, his foot his foot does look better now, and so we fuse joints for stability. Um, in the spine, we have all these different deformities, particularly things like scoliosis, and this is my son's surgery. Here you can see his and pump, and you can see um, these rods and, and and things in there. So this is very common in the kids who are GMFCS-5. Now, once again, I could talk an hour about each one of these things. There's all these things that are called alternative treatments or unconventional treatments, and um, I'm not going to spend much time on them. Um, but a lot of these are entrepreneurial-based and and. And just because it means that we didn 't come up with them as doctors, so that means they must be wrong. Um, but there may be something. there might be something to some of these, um, but most of them have shown, have not been shown to have any good long term outcome caregiver stress is a, is an important area to think about it because you 're not treating just the child you 're treating the family and you 're treating the parents um, there 's a much higher instance of back pain. I've had three spine surgeries, but I probably blame that on football and being an orthopedic surgeon, but I did lift my son a lot. And, um, but so there's higher incidence of back pain in, in, par- in parents who give kids with cerebral palsy. Increased mental strain. Um, you know, there's a, there's a paper that was written that said 85% of parents with cerebral palsy are divorced. And I go, gosh, I just don't see that. And um, then when I, when I wrote a paper on this uh, caregiver stress, I found that that person just made that up and put it in a book. And there's no, the statistics are no worse than regular marriage, which is 50%, still pretty bad. Um, however, mothers usually give up their jobs or their careers. Um, there's sleep disorders with the child, there's sleep disorders with the parents, particularly. Um, my wife has probably not had a good night's sleep in 35 years. Um, there's sibling stress. Although well, it's interesting, if you look at a lot of the literature on siblings, they, are, they go into caregiving um, fields, which is really interesting. Like I said my son's going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, um, so it's kind, of, I'm, it's kind of interesting. The other stress is, is something that Yvonne brought up today, is that we have all these new treatments that are very expensive and have no evidence, and what are you supposed to do? And we were, I was guilty of that. We used the, we used the selective dorsal rhizotomy, um, but this, the stem cell treatment is what everybody wants now. And i people go to Mexico and Germany and China to get these, as you all know. Um, we're going to talk. I have a whole talk on transition, so I won't go through this, and I won't talk about um, some of the adult issues. But I have a huge adult clinic, and one thing I want to bring up because I'm going to bring it up again is the the huge mental um, problems that that get people with cerebral palsy have. Forty five percent of my patients have bipolar disorder, and it's not because they're 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 just depressed because they have. A disability, it's, they actually become manic, where they don't sleep for seven days and, and are hitting out and reaching out to people. This is a different problem, and this is something that we haven't haven't noticed that much. End with two things. Just like, and I and I've been through these, um, and it, and just like when you someone in your family dies, you go through these stages of grief: of shock, ang- denial, anger, bargaining, depression. Testing, seeing if there's any realis- realistic solution, and finally acceptance, and and every one of our families goes through these at different times. Some of them never get past anger, and um, some of them get to acceptance when the kids two or three years old go, "Okay, this is what it is, and this is what I have to how I have to live." Um, so, what have I learned in my 35 years? Um, there's always people are seeking for a cure for their child. Um, simple insights led to great changes in care. Dystonia, the GMFCS. There's almost no money available for research, as Marshall will tell you. And as we got some, we got, some, uh, we went to Congress, lobbied. You didn't get to go because you work for them. But we got to go, we went to Congress. Huh? I did, yeah. And we got $60 million. And then it got sequestered. And nobody knows where it is. And uh, Tom Harkin retired, and so we don't have anything. There's no money. Um, there's a huge disparity between health care for children and adults with disabilities. Um, treatment's important, but as Yvonne was saying today, prevention is the real, uh, real hope. And all of you are my heroes, um, you have, especially those of you who have no vested interest other than um, taking care of um, this population. So I'm going to quit here because I have some more from the next talk. But thank you.